Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, good morning and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you are with us. So if you didn't know, today is National Chocolate Cake Day. According to the Dover Post, the chocolate cake was born in 1765 when a doctor and a chocolate maker teamed up in an old mill. A popular Philadelphia cookbook author, Eliza Leslie, published the earliest chocolate cake recipe in 1847 in the Ladies' Recipe Book. The first box cake mix was created by a company called O. Duff & Sons in the late 1920s, and Betty Crocker released their first dry cakes mix in 1947. I personally hope that all of you and all of us, myself included, can enjoy some cake later today, just not on the show. That could get really messy here. Uh, but joining me here at the top of the show is a congressman who is the ranking member in the U.S. House. That means he's the chief Republican on the House Small Business Committee, and his name is Blaine Lukatmeyer. He's from Missouri. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, Carrie. Good to be with you. And uh, I am a chocolate cake fan as well. That's uh, some good news this morning. Well, let's combine small businesses with chocolate cake, and how about we go patronize some small businesses, get some cake. Um, so, Congressman, you are there on top of the, you know, you're working with the Democrat who's the, the head, uh, you're the chief Republican on the Small Business Committee, and you wrote an op-ed for Fox Business where you said that the, the closing of small businesses is just blatantly unfair. You said the fact that people, we allow thousands of people to walk into Walmart, but we shut down a six-table restaurant. It's just not sound health policy, and finding small businesses for refusing to, to die quietly is not a tough but necessary decision. You called them veiled attempts by the Democrats to appear re responsible without having to tangle with corporations that wield powerful connections and high-priced legal teams. So those are some uh, fighting words you have for your Democratic colleagues. What do you, did you get any reaction? Is this going to push them in a, a direction to open things? Well, I'm hopeful. I think we got some uh, good reaction, I think, from some of the uh, major mayors around the country uh, and, and, uh, and governors. I think you, you saw that uh, it looks like, uh, you know, California and Illinois and Michigan and, and, uh, and Washington, D.C. are opening back up. Uh, I'm not sure it was my op-ed that did that, but I think, um, you know, they, they're being pushed by their citizens and by their small business people who are basically saying the same thing I said in my op-ed about they're being strangled to death and, and unfairly targeted because of uh, the way that the, these cities and states are being managed by their elected officials uh, compared to other businesses within the state. Uh, as I said in the op-ed, you know, and what you just read, uh, you're looking at different businesses like Walmart and Target. Uh, some of them have uh, eating establishments inside their, their business, and yet the small little mom and pop uh, little restaurant or, or donut shop on the corner is closed because of the arbitrary decision by uh, by the, the leaders to do this. I think, well, Congressman, first know, of all, I, ha I have to say, you might be the first politician I've ever spoken to who wasn't trying to take credit something uh, when you were very humble about your op-ed there. But I, I got to ask, though, because why are these decisions being made? Why can Walmart be open, but a small operation, a small business, a mom-and-pop shop, why? What, what's the rationale? 
Well, I think, you know, the obvious should be pretty, you know, the answer should be obvious, Kerry, uh, from the standpoint that Walmart is a big conglomerate. They can go to Washington and they can bang on people's desks and, and people will listen. Where you have, uh, you know, John and Jane's little uh, donut shop on the, on the corner, it's like, who are you? Uh, that's why small businesses get the, the short end of the stick here. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. And this is why our committee is so important, because we need to be the voice for those individuals that own these small businesses that wish... And quite frankly, small business drives our economy. You know, almost 70 percent of the new jobs are created by small business. Uh, almost half the jobs uh, are, are still in small business. Uh, they're tremendous economic drivers. They're the word. These people, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers who drive our economy, uh, develop new products and, and services. And we need those folks to make our, our economy whole and to drive it. And it's 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 counterintuitive to believe that we can we can we can survive without these people. I, I really am frustrated by the leadership in some of these states and cities, but uh, that's our job on the committee. Sure. So so what uh, what are you guys doing? Uh, what specifically are you doing to help small businesses? Because I'm seeing huge packages like the 1.9 trillion from the Biden administration, and he wants to hike minimum wage to $15 an hour. And a lot of people say that would close and that would shutter a lot of small businesses because they can't afford. $15 an hour. So what's the, the path forward for your committee, especially if the Democrats are running it? Well, I think, you know, if you look at what uh, we did during the Trump administration and had the economy growing uh, at an almost uh, astronomical rate with almost 1.2 million more jobs who had employees before the pandemic hit, we need to be able to get back to that. And we can do that if we leave things in place like tax reform, the tax cuts that we had, you deregulate, you don't overburden uh, uh, small businesses with with regulation. You, you continue to help them have access to capital. And then we are committing to provide oversight to make that happen. And I'm fearful with the new administration. And you can see with some of the executive orders coming out of uh, of the of the uh, you know the the White House that we're they're, they're starting to think about rolling back some of these things. You know they want to go back to higher taxes. They want more regulation. Or they're they're trying to and again intimidate these small businesses with some of these these nonsensical rules. In my opinion. And I think our job on the committee is to provide that oversight, to push back on it, point out whenever they're wrong. Obviously, we're in the minority, so it's going to be a little more difficult to have the bully pulpit of, of be able to push back on some of this stuff. But we need to be able to, to do that. And that's why being here with you this morning is so important to get the word out that uh, we're going to continue to push and push hard for our small businesses, our entrepreneurs, to make sure they can continue to be the drivers of our economy. And what are you guys doing? Uh, because a lot of like what you said is happening either the mayors or the governors. What kind of leverage does Congress have? Because you guys are there in Washington, but a lot of these decisions are happening out in the states. Well, I, you know, you know, number one is the PPP program is very, very helpful. Uh, we need to continue to fund that and operate that. We need to put, provide the oversight over it. But, you know, there still is a, uh, some things that we can do uh, with regards to, uh, I know with, when, when the pandemic hit, you know, the Federal Reserve opened up, I think it was 13 different facilities to be able to underpin and provide liquidity for the various markets out there, whether it was the capital markets or whether it was the, the municipal markets where your state and local governments were able to keep get their bond ratings, continue to keep them up and be able to have uh, places for them to go to purchase as well as sell their municipal bonds. So it, it was very important for us to keep the, the liquidity in not only the, the capital area, but also in the state and local government area and continue to prop them up. So we're, there's things we can do to help uh, the states be able to continue to, uh, you know, to be productive and keep their, their, their economies going. But the, the things that I'm fearful, the things that are happening with 
All right, Congressman, we appreciate it. It's Congressman Blaine Lukemeyer from the House Small, Bitty Commission, uh, Small Business Commission. And coming up next is Dan Eberhardt, an energy expert. Stay tuned. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. We love getting our viewer feedback. Yesterday I asked you guys, what do you think about this? So Hollywood says it loves diversity, but why did it blacklist Larry Elder, a black conservative filmmaker? You guys did not hold back in what you said. You said Wayne Hager, for example. He says, I'll take a stab at that because there's their definition of diversity only means diversity within the boundaries of liberal think, not the whole spectrum of idea or thought. Black and conservative are not acceptable within their definition. Another viewer, Concerned Citizen, says they love diversity of skin color, but they can't handle diversity of thought. Hashtag we've got a country to save. And French Resistor says Hollywood does not love diversity. This is the biggest bunch of monolithic conformists anywhere. And that's been true of everything, not just politics, and long before Trump came along. They are the least diverse group anywhere in terms of thoughts and behavior. Well, that's your take. I want to hear what you think also about small businesses. Go to my Twitter at Carrie Sheffield. I want to hear what you think about when is this country going to reopen? When are we going to finally have small businesses be able to open their doors in this COVID madness? And speaking of business, I want to bring in Dan Eberhardt. He's the CEO of Can Canary USA, and he's author of Switching Gears, the Petroleum-Powered Electric Vehicle. So tell us a little bit first about Canary. What do you guys do? Sure. So we're an oil field service company. So we're basically the guys with the trucks and the equipment that help the oil companies get the stuff out of the ground. So similar to a, a subcontractor. Okay. So you're an oil energy expert and everything's been changing. We're seeing the new administration, Biden's come in. He's already with the stroke of the pen. He has changed everything for you guys. We've seen the labor unions are even having some buyer's remorse with Biden. They say, we regret backing this guy. We backed him in 2020, and now we're not going to back him, or at least we're upset about what he's doing with the Keystone Pipeline. Do you think this is going to be an ongoing tension between the labor unions and, and Biden because he, he, he got rid of Keystone, and now he says he also, uh, you know, he, he wants to ban fracking on federal land, and then he wants to ban any sort of new drilling on federal land. Is this just, just the tip? Do you think we're going to see more basically fighting with labor I, I unions? Think we're gonna more, I think we're going to see more, and I think a lot of these temporary bans and moratoriums are going to turn into being longer and longer pieces uh, as the administration goes on. I don't think they have any intention of, of turning them back. But the, the main thing that I think we need to worry about is the, the cost for consumers going up. Every time there's a new regulation, we're you know banning fracking, we're not allowing the Keystone Pipeline, and we're uh, having a drilling moratorium on federal lands and offshore, offshore you know, these things drive up energy costs for consumers. You know, it's also really important. You know, the administration had to choose between do we placate the, the far left uh, that want the Green New Deal and these type of programs, or do we placate the unions who want, who want you know, good, good paying jobs? And they clearly sided with the, um, the environmental activists. So, I, you know, I think the administration is being really short-sighted here. 
I think it's bad for the American economy and these kind of decisions in the energy industry and, and you know, what Biden's doing in general with these executive orders, a lot of them are, it's really going to weigh on the economy and it's going to weigh on small business. So uh, you have said we were talking during the break about the fact that you yeah. think that this will actually be good for the big players of the oil industry. Tell us why that. Well, it, it's already pushed the oil prices up and, you know, that's going to trickle down to, you know, higher costs for consumers, as I said. But it's the bigger companies are better able to withstand these shocks and it, and it prohibits small companies from starting and medium sized companies like Canary from you know, moving forward and competing makes it harder for us. So I think that this is really a a shoe-in for the, the biggest companies in the industry because they will be, be best able to adapt to these regulations. Uh, they can they can pay the most to their lobbyists. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, that's interesting. So are you telling me that the Biden administration is actually good for places like ExxonMobil? Uh, no, I mean, I still, I still think it's going to be a net, a net negative, and it's going to be harder for them to environment. And it's going to drive up their operating costs. But I think where it's, where it's going to be good is for a company like ExxonMobil versus a small company with maybe you know a two hundred million dollar market cap. Um, they can't switch its drilling from you know the federal lands are about twenty five percent where drilling occurs, private lands are where about seventy five percent where drilling occurs. But now companies are going to have to do a complete switch and get off of the the federal lands. So if a company had focused most of its eggs on the federal drilling on federal lands, which was completely fine in the Trump administration. Now they're going to have to scurry to try to find drilling and get drilling permits on the private lands. And this stuff doesn't work. You know, it's it's like building a house, getting a permit to build a house or a building or something. It's not that easy. It can be done, but it takes time. And so the smaller companies are going to be disadvantaged, whereas somebody like Exxon is going to have inventory of drilling permits and be able to switch what their focus is pretty quickly. All right, so let's talk about globally, though, because this is all happening here in the United States of America. People who support the oil and gas industry here would say this is self-imploding, that America is self-imploding. But what does that do for the rest of the world? Like, where do the Saudis play in all of this? Do you think that the Saudis view Biden as someone who's going to be softer and so they're going to be pulling the strings more? I mean, we've heard that they have restricted the, the barrel supply basically to kind of test Biden. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hearing the same thing. I think that what they're looking for is, you know, a, a tighter policy is going to lead to for, for what's been happening for years with, is U.S. shale has been taking market share from OPEC, which is led by Saudi Arabia. And I think that we may see that reverse a little bit. And we're, look, we're either going to have higher prices or we're going to have more foreign oil, uh, which principally from the Middle East or both. And I think this will ultimately these anti oil and gas policies, they're anti U.S. oil and gas policies. So they're going to cause um, a little bit of an opening for Saudi Arabia and others in the U.S. for them to take market share back and to, you know, help provide their folks jobs. What about Russia? President Biden yeah, had no, his first call yesterday with Putin. Do you think, uh, I mean, that the whole collusion narrative with former President Trump, it seems at least with these policies, they could benefit Putin. Yeah, no, these policies are going to benefit Putin, too. I mean, look, a higher oil price in the U.S. is good for everybody. So I, I really think that we are headed towards an era of, you know, more regulation, higher prices, and, um, you know, less jobs for, you know, folks folks like us at Canary and for uh, union folks that would build this Keystone Pipeline. Well, it's definitely not better for Americans who have to fill their tanks and seeing the prices no. spike up. But let's talk about the, uh, the Canada. So Justin Trudeau, yeah. who is known for being Mr. Liberal, uh, he yeah. came out and he was upset at Biden for canceling Keystone Pipeline. Where are they going to turn? Are they going to turn to places like China? Yeah, so they're already building a pipeline that goes uh, through somewhere near uh, near Vancouver 
to get oil, export oil, you know, across the Pacific to, you know, principally China. So it's really a, a loss because this is cheap energy that could, that is a safe way to deliver it that could be going to U.S. refineries and helping, you know, bring the cost down for U.S. consumers. And instead, the Canadians are going to be forced to lean to China. Again, I don't think this makes any sense. We're losing jobs and we're losing access to cheap energy and we're driving the cost up slightly for American consumers. So I don't really see where the where the real policy win is. I, I would urge them to proceed with caution and do a group thing. I also think on a macro scale, the, the next administration unwinding a project that's been that was, had a 10 year environmental impact study is really kind of crazy. And it sends the wrong message to future infrastructure projects in 2030, 2040 for the, the next administration to just unwind um, the permits given by the previous administration. All right. Hey there. Thanks for joining us again with your expertise. Thank you for having me back. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, Dan Everett. All right, folks, we'll be back next with Phil Klein. You know him from his challenge on the election. Well, he's back. He's the director of the Amistad Project, and we have his latest on what the Democrats are trying to do to make the permanent, they want to make permanent what happened with the chaos we saw at the ballot due to COVID, the excuse of COVID. Well, Phil Klein is having none of that, and he's coming up next. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you are here with us. I want to let you know about something that's happening tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's special programming here on Real America's Voice. It's in partnership with Heritage Action for America and it's called Hold the Line. It's hosted by our founder, John Solomon, and it is a movement to rebuild, renew and resurge America. And we're going to hear from folks like Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, you know him from Texas, the firebrand, and also Heritage Action for America, their executive director, Jessica Anderson. And they're going to come and tell us how do they view the world? How do they view how to operate here in the age of Biden, in the age of Democrats in both houses of Congress, what to do at the state level? It's going to be really interesting. You want to make sure you tune in 6 p.m. Eastern. John Solomon, you know him, you love him. And speaking of Democrats in Congress, I'm going to bring in Phil Klein. He's the director of the Amistad Project. And you can look at his projects at his website. It's got slash or got dash freedom.org got dash freedom.org and his project is looking at what the democrats are doing on capitol hill and basically according to his view on it the democrats are trying to make permanent all of the chaos that we saw at the ballot box during the 2020 election that the Democrats and even some Republicans at the state level pushed through a lot of things that would never have happened during normal times. And guess what? Now the Democrats want to make this normal. Phil, what's going on and is this going to pass? Well, I certainly hope not because it's, a, as, as mentioned in the article, it's a roadmap to one party rule. And what the Democrat Party is doing is essentially admitting that we had a lawless 2020 election, and now they need to pass legislation to make what they did permanent. 
they have automatic registration. There's, you have to opt out to not be a registered voter. And then it restricts the states in being able to challenge registrations. Moreover, it requires advanced voting. It expressly requires every state to allow ballot harvesting. It is moving towards voting at home. So the technology to print your own ballot and then allow third parties to pick up as many of those ballots as they want and take it into an election office for a vote without question. It is taking all of the worst actions that undermine the integrity of the election and codifying them in law. And the Democrats have majorities in both houses, and I'm sure what you're saying, single party rule forever, is something that Democrats would be salivating at. Do you think they're going to break the filibuster and say, instead of the 60 vote threshold to maybe cool down what's happening in the House, we're going to just rush it through with 51 votes? Maybe they'll even get a Mitt Romney or someone. But to pull over enough votes to say, this is going to be permanent. Well, if they do, they fundamentally reordered how we do elections in America. And it's deeply concerning, Carrie, when you look at their broad aims and their conduct over the last year. They have attempted to fundamentally reorder how we do government by getting blue state governors to declare themselves to be the law rather than part of the lawmaking process. They're talking about declaring environmental emergencies so they do not have to pass policies through the legislature, but rather just proclaim them to be so. Additionally, as we have discussed for the past several months, they fundamentally reordered the way that we do elections and they are engaging in censorship of their opposition with big tech as a partner. And in fact, Carrie, in this bill, there is a provision that makes it a crime essentially to criticize what they're doing because it criminalizes what they call misinformation. So if you provide anybody out there any misinformation about how this process will work under democratic rule, you could be arrested. So is our conversation here potentially at risk because we're talking about the possible problems? Well, it hasn't passed. Right, but, but if theoretically, passes, let's say it passes, this conversation that we're even having on this program right now, could, could it be illegal? Well, what is misinformation? And according to the Democrats, the president of the United States speaking and saying that if you, let's take back our country and do it peaceably, is, in, is invitation to insurrection and therefore an impeachable offense or a high crime or misdemeanor, then those who have power can define what misinformation is. And that is the problem. Generally in this country over the past couple of centuries, we have tried to give free speech room to blossom. And if somebody speaks poorly, or if somebody has bad ideas, we give them a platform because we trust Americans to be able to discern the truth and make decisions. That's not the current Democratic Party. They do not trust Americans. And they believe, and you see it in their conduct, that the greatest threat to America is about 75 million people who voted for President Trump, former President Trump. And so they have to restrict the flow of information. They have to change the way that we select our leaders. And then they have to criminalize dissent. And we've seen that pattern in other governments around the world throughout history. It's just stunning to see it in the United States.
Well, Phil, what's interesting is that this is something they're doing right now, the Democrats, but it's not it's not brand new. In fact, in 2019, Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, he wrote an op-ed and he said what the Democrats were trying to do with these election laws. He called it an attempt at a power grab. And he said this would grow the federal government's power over Americans' political speech and elections. He said it should be called the Democrat Politician Protection Act. So this was 2019 when he wrote it. What's new compared to 2020 and 2021 versus this 2019? Well, I think, I think the direct assault on speech is new. The boldness in which it has occurred, the censorship and the partnership with big tech has now become very well known. And as we've discussed previously, Kerry, we saw the, the Zuckerberg impact on the election through the providing of over $400 million to dictate how local election are to be conducted by these local officials. And within the Democratic bill, there's not any challenge to that private expenditure, which, by the way, exceeded the federal appropriation for the election. So we saw in 2020 a shadow government that was operated in managing the election with a partnership between the left and big tech. And now we see them trying to write that partnership and those methods into law, as well as criminalize or at least intimidate those who might criticize that approach. So this bill that's happening right now, it's called HR1, House Resolution 1. That means it's the very first bill that the Democrats have brought up. That's why it's number one. So you know this is what they want. They want to look out for number one. But talk about the constitutionality of this. Are there constitutional challenges to this? Well, potentially. Now, what they're doing is they're doing what Washington typically does. Washington cannot dictate to the states how to manage the election because those uh, responsibilities in the Constitution are directly provided to state legislatures. So what they do is they dangle the dollar bill. They say, if you want any federal funding for these types of programs, you must do this. You must accept ballot harvesting. They are incentivizing public schools public schools to train up young voters, as well as working towards lowering the age to, of voting to 16, so public schools will control that environment. So it's dangling the dollar bill. Now, they proclaim that the federal government is um, has the primary responsibility. Well, Phil, I got to say, um, they listened to Greta von Thunberg, a 16-year-old, so this should come in no surprise. All right, <laughs> Phil, we got to leave it right there. We'll be right back, folks. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're here with us. So President Biden is already making waves on the health care front. And in fact, as the Washington Post reported, President Biden has said that he will reopen the website healthcare.gov for buying health insurance plans. He says this is his plan to bolster the Affordable Care Act uh, after President Trump, former President Trump, spent four years trying to peel back the 2010 health care law. 
So he's reopening this website, healthcare.gov. This is in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. What does this all mean? Joining me to discuss this is Dean Clancy. He's Senior Health Policy Fellow for Americans for Prosperity. Good morning, Dean. Good morning. So walk us through, what does this mean? Because healthcare.gov, I think it would put chills down the spine of a lot of people of how dysfunctional it was and how it didn't work at all and it crashed on its debut that a lot of folks say it's very bureaucratic. But what happened with the website? Was it shut down entirely? And what does this mean that it's reopening? Well, the way uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare works is once a year for a period of about a month or two, and it can vary, you're allowed to enroll in an Obamacare health plan. For the rest of the year, you're not allowed to change plans or or enroll unless there are certain exceptions, like if it's the first time you're joining or if you have a change in your family status, you lose your job, then you're allowed to, to make a change or enroll. Otherwise, it's closed. And what the Biden administration is doing is basically extending the number of days when you can go ahead and join an Obamacare health plan. Why are they doing that? They want more people on the government-subsidized health plans. Their their plan is to try to increase dependency on government health care, and expanding the Obamacare uh, program is one of the ways they are doing that. And so, so you said that it, before it was only open for one month. Does that mean that people can go the whole calendar year, 365 days now, if they want to buy one? Uh, no, I think they're probably expanding it to uh, 90 days. Uh, I forget what the law allows exactly. Certainly it can be two months. I think it can be more. And uh, if it can be more, then they will do that because they want to get as many people enrolled as possible. The Trump administration had pared it back to, I think, 45 days. So, you know, it's going to change depending on who's in power. So and what do you think is going to be the impact? Do you think we'll have more people who are moving over to government subsidized health care? I think you will see that. And uh, when you go to healthcare.gov, if you're below a certain income, they will steer you automatically into the Medicaid program. That's the the healthcare uh, program for poor people run by the states with federal money. And so you may also see increases in Medicaid enrollment. And, you know, over the past 10 years, we've definitely seen a, a large increase in the number of Americans using government subsidized healthcare. We've seen the employer provided healthcare system uh, shrink a bit. And the individual market where you can just buy your own portable health insurance plan has really been devastated. And that's a shame because that's the one place where you used to be able to go to get real personally tailored portable health insurance. In your organization, you're very well known, Americans for Prosperity. It's very powerful. You're funded by the Koch family. The, you know, you guys, when you push for something very often, you're successful. What is your take on this? Do you guys oppose what Biden is doing? Well, Americans for Prosperity is a grassroots organization. We have uh, thousands and thousands of members in states all over the country, you know, grassroots activists, and we do get funded by more than just uh, the Cokes. There are, we have many, many uh, donors right. and contributors. We, uh, we believe that every American should have access to the high quality health care they need when they need it at a price they can afford. 
And therefore, we think you have to allow markets to work in healthcare. You have to allow people to choose their doctor and their insurance plan. And when you do that, prices come down, quality rises. There's more health care to go around for everyone. Sure. Unfortunately, I- the Biden administration is going in the other direction. Mm, so, so you guys oppose it. And, and yes, and, and full disclosure, I, I did some work uh, with your, your parent organization as well. So but the uh, so you're saying that you think it's going in the wrong direction because you think it'll encourage more people into government run health care as opposed to private sector. Uh, yes. In the Democratic primaries last year, all of the candidates basically said they want to go to a government run health care system. Their only debate was over how quickly to get there. And Joe Biden, who, of course, won the nomination, was the most moderate, if you will. He said, I don't want to just have a, an immediate government takeover of health care, you know, abolishing the private insurance companies, which a number of the candidates support. Instead, he wants to get there incrementally. How would he do that? Things like expanding Obamacare subsidies, expanding the Medicaid program, and eventually basically uh, undermining the private Sure. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, the uh, Politico reported this was last or in 2019 during the uh, Medicare for all push within the Democratic Party that there were some labor unions who were split with Biden on this. Some major unions have come out against the single payer system that would all but eliminate private insurance. But some of the biggest labor groups in the country have embraced the plan. Do you think this is going to be a schism we see with labor? Oh, yes, very much so. There are labor unions who have uh, negotiated very good health benefits for their members, and they know what so-called Medicare for all really means. It would mean a huge um, reduction in the generosity of those benefits, and they oppose that. So you're going to see uh, Democrats uh, debating each other uh, over that, and I think that uh, the likely outcome is going to be that the unions that uh, oppose single-payer will prevail. They would get a carve-out. And, of course, that means that not everybody All right. be in the Dean government. Dean Clancy, we got to leave her right there. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jeff. Hey, folks, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're with us. Well, if you missed the news, you heard it here. The website, and it's a growing media company. They've got a TV empire all over social media, the Epoch Times. They're a rising media company. And yesterday, we broke the story that YouTube stripped the Epoch Times of their ability to monetize their video content on YouTube. The publisher of the Epoch Times sent me an email, uh, or his associate, and he said, this is the latest example of big tech suppression of free speech, a step on the road to communist-style censorship. And the communist reference there is interesting because the Epoch Times is very critical of the Chinese Communist Party. They know censorship when they see it. But in response, a YouTube spokesperson said to me that the reason they were demonetized was that it was over issues related to harmful or sensitive content. And they did tell me that within 30 days, they can challenge this. They can be reinstated if they fulfill the requirements that YouTube is asking for. So we've got some fair comment there from YouTube. But I want to bring in Jeff Brain. He's the CEO of Clout Hub to talk about this because Clout Hub is one of these rising media platforms and social media networks that is coming to fill the void that people see and feel when we see conservatives who are getting stripped of their access to these social media networks, for example, like YouTube. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, have you heard anything from the Epoch Times? Are they going to be working with you more? 
Well, you know, we haven't yet heard from them, although they're welcome on CloudHub. CloudHub has channels and we have many other news agencies coming. Uh, just last week, Right Side Broadcasting, which was also taken down by uh, Twitter and I believe Facebook, uh, started broadcasting on CloudHub and we would welcome Mac Times. And in terms of the what happened here with YouTube, so a lot of people said, hey, especially people who are maybe more supportive of Biden, more liberal, they say, hey, there's no constitutional requirement that you should force someone to be able to have someone make money off your platform. But isn't that the contradiction of the, uh, you know, the baking a cake where if, if you're if you oppose gay marriage, for example, and the baker doesn't want to make a cake. Is this the same thing or is it different when we're talking about ideology um, here? Well, it is the same thing. You're absolutely right. In fact, there's a, there's a law about this. It's Section 230 that requires that platforms treat everybody equally. And in exchange, they get a liability exclusion from what people post on their platforms. So if you want the liability exclusion, you have to play by the rules. Um, and, and it would be one thing if it was, you know, it's it's seemingly all against a particular point of view. You know, I was talking to Mike Lindell yesterday who was taken down off of Twitter. Last week I talked to General Flynn who was taken down. It's, it's happening over and over again. And I, I would call about upon the new administration, you know, which is talk about equity a lot, to provide equity in our voices. Give us back our rights to, to speak our minds. That's what the American, you know, constitution is all about, right? The ability, free speech, you know, express ourselves, and suddenly we're under attack. So you guys are, I assume you're filling the void here, the parlor and Twitter and other networks that are uh, kicking conservatives off, or in Parler's case, uh, Amazon kicked them off. What's your growth been like just the last, uh, you know, since the election? Well, CloudHub is a little different kind of platform. We're not, a, we're not an alternative to Twitter. We're actually a very broad platform that actually empowers people to come together, and I think we need to as a society come back together and address issues positively, interact with your legislators, interact with your neighbors, and, and to solve the issues that impact our lives, our communities, and society. Our growth has been quite substantial recently uh, because we offer free speech, but yet we're not the Wild West. There are limits. We don't incite violence. We don't allow people to talk hate, and, there, and there's no pornography allowed on cloud. It's truly a digital, modern town hall that we're offering. So when you say substantial growth, are you talking triple digits? I mean, how, how much growth here? Um, we, we've, we've grown by two million people in two weeks. Two million people in two weeks, wow. That is, wow. How are you handling that? Uh, you guys got enough <laughs> servers? Yes, we do, we, we're fine. We, we anticipated it, it was a little bit uh, rough at first, but uh, we were able to scale quite nicely and the platform is performing well, so. We are a substantial platform. We're in an incubator in California. You know, we have major people on our team that have been in tech for years. Um, we're in this for the long run. All right, so someone new to your platform, what do you recommend? Well, first of all, it's easy to join. It takes two minutes. We don't dig into your, you know, private information, so it's completely private. Um, it's also designed to be healthy. We have Lots of different things people can do currently and we'll be adding a lot more. Right now we have a video gallery like YouTube. We have channels where you can watch great uh, content. We have a newsroom where you, you can see get the news from all the major news organizations. Uh, we have 
groups where people can organize, whether that's at a local level or state level or federal level, all the issues they care about. We also have a discussion timeline like Twitter. In the future, we'll be adding a faith hub, an education hub, an entertainment hub, sports hub, business hub. This is going to be able to connect people. We're changing how social media works. We're going to be able to connect people to all the things in their life that matter most. All right, real quick, my latest piece at Justin News is looking at the legal arguments that people who believe in free speech and what they're arguing for free speech have against these tech companies. They say it has to do with things like Section 230, also a breach of uh, fiduciary duty by the people who are running the companies, and then possible collusion in antitrust. Do you think there was collusion here to kick off conservatives? Well, it certainly looks like when conservatives are taken down, they're taken down by all the platforms within hours sometimes of each other. And, and that looks a little bit suspicious. I, I really think that the American people need to wake up because while it's against the right currently, it'll come against the left eventually. All right, Jeff Brain, CEO of CloudHub, thank you so much. We'll be right back, stay tuned. Hey, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. I'm going to close the show. I want to put this graph up for you. This is from the Wall Street Journal and it's striking. I mean, it, this is really something. The COVID-19, apparently, according to this data, has nearly wiped out the flu. So the number of positive flu samples that have been found in specimens sent over to the World Health Organization surveillance sites, they're basically non-existent here in 2020 and 21. You can see just that little, it looks like a caterpillar at the bottom of the screen there, that little red line. You can see the other states here, or the other years here, 2018, huge pink spike, 2017-18, gray spike, 16-17, huge growth here compared to what happened in 2021. So the big question here is if we can do this during a pandemic what else could we do during the regular flu season uh the big question obviously is for people who say this would be a big problem when you're concerned about liberty and making sure that people have freedom but at the same time are there just more precautions we can take just common sense things that we can take to fight the flu uh, rather than having just a complete forcible shutdown of everything but are there other things we can do you know maybe that means uh, washing your hands more using a little more hand sanitizer being a little more thoughtful about if you're going to go out so that you don't affect somebody else maybe uh, especially older folks uh, staying away keeping your distance um, also I was talking with uh, my producer Dan on this does the COVID-19 actually kill the flu virus? I haven't heard anything about that, but that's a question maybe worth exploring. Um, but in any case, we're glad to see at least some positive news here on that front. All right, that does it for us here. Stay tuned for more.